Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This episode marks the three-month anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Wendell Stevenson has been there for the bulk of that time, writing the first rough draft of this conflict, which is likely to alter the shape of the 21st century's history, or at least its next few decades. Stevenson has some experience writing about big events. She has covered war in Afghanistan, Iraq, and the Arab Spring uprising in Egypt. Her journalism has formed the basis of several well-regarded books, including The Weight of a Mustard Seed about Iraq and Circling the Square about the Tahrir Square uprising. She's just returned to London, and I spoke with her while her mental impressions of Ukraine were fresh, even though she was in the physical zone of letting go exhaustion, which happens when you leave a war zone. I started our conversation with the obvious question, what was it like? I was very lucky, very in a very privileged position to be writing essentially dispatches and features for 1843 magazine, which is the features arm of The Economist. And it was great because I could send them dispatches, observations, stories. And so I was not tied to daily news and exploding things. And I could dig around the edges a little bit and go lateral. And at the beginning... It was very much fast dispatches, a lot of fast and furious daily reports. What I saw, here we are at the station talking to people, very kind of hurried scribbles in a notebook, impressions, checkpoints, people digging in in the forest in the north. Um, The very early days of the war when everybody was scrambling and scrabbling and there were huge, huge uh, numbers of people pouring out of the east and it was as if the entire country had sort of tilted from east to west and the population just slid from east to west and poured over the the Polish border and so going to the train station in Lviv this extraordinary sort of hub of of people and just who were pouring on and off trains and decanting into buses and carrying their pets and their lives and you know a lot of you know mainly almost all women and children because of course men between the ages of 18 and 60 60 were banned from leaving the country under martial law so the first days were mid-February dark cold snow flurries in the air the threat and blast of war and also that very sort of febrile um, scary moments when a war begins and you don't know what the shape of it is yet. You don't know what is to come and there's this terrifying uncertainty and you don't know how far the Russians are going to go. You don't know what the parameters of the war are. You don't know what cities are going to be bombed and what aren't. And at the beginning, it was a lot of um, scrambling, total mobilization. It was extraordinary to see the speed and urgency and totally dedicated focus of everybody volunteered immediately every single person and I was in Lviv originally I came in through the north and spent a few days up near the Belarusian border in a small and nondescript town called Lubomol and then I went down to Lviv and you could see there were you know checkpoints everywhere volunteers manning the checkpoints with pitchforks borrowed rifles sticks sort of thing there were in every the schools were closed immediately and in the schools and in the canteens they were cooking for the volunteers the territorial defense units who were manning the checkpoints and they were sewing camouflage netting out of cloth rags and fishermen's nets to 
to um, camouflage them and disguise them. And, and, you know, every single family in Lviv had friends, relations, friends of friends of friends, strangers sleeping on their floor. Everybody was a taxi. Everybody was triangulating private, this extraordinary network of a mobilized population of word of mouth Mm -hmm. to get people out, to pick people up from the station, to help people with kids, to find a place for them to stay overnight. Nobody went unfed. Nobody was left, you know, no family slept outside you know, in those difficult days in the in getting the, them from one train to another in, in um, Lviv and so forth. So at the beginning, I was writing, you know, very sort of fast and urgent impressionistic stuff because that's what the story was. And then you began to understand that the West seemed relatively safer, that the missiles coming our way were fewer and that the Russian armoured column, do you remember watching it for days and days and days and days, and this 40-mile-long, 60 kilometres long, of, it was, was approaching on Kiev, and it looked completely terrifying, like a sort of dagger, sword thrust. And then it sort of stopped mm. and halted and stalled, and, and it looked like a sort of siege, and, it, and that stuck for two or three weeks. Mm. And then almost as suddenly as that seemed the most threatening thing in the world, they withdrew. I mean, not suddenly. There was obviously a huge um, and concerted Ukrainian counteroffensive um, that was difficult. I think there was sort of raging to and fro battles in those western and, and northern suburbs of Kiev. Um, and then and then almost as quickly as they'd come, they were gone. And, and it's one of the sort of extraordinary things that it's been very unpredictable, mm. right? Let me, let's go back to the, those first weeks of the war when you were in Lviv, which is a city that I know. And what, what were your impressions? Because, you know, you go to war zones, you, you don't expect to see Lviv, this jewel box of a, of a perfectly preserved Austrian imperial provincial capital. Perfectly preserved with coffee shops, extremely good croissants and, you know, and very much a sort of um, cafe society in her life. It was when I first arrived at the beginning of the war, much of that was shuttered. It was um, dour and grim and closed off. There were very there were few people in the streets. I wouldn't say it was empty, but it definitely had a desolate feel. And they were shuttering the museums and sandbagging the um, cupolas and the um, statues and the fountains and the churches and there were a lot of military people. I remember one day, just I think the first or second day I arrived, just walking up the the street and there was a uh, forty or fifty um, man unit who were being addressed by their new commander. They just volunteered and they were in this kind of mix of camouflage and whatever they could and gym bags and some in trainers and some in boots and they all gave a rallying cry and off they marched. Um, so the first days were felt grim and a bit scary. And then slowly it seemed, it was clear that we, that Lviv wasn't under particularly direct immediate threat. So things began to open up. And by the time I left and went to Kiev about four or five weeks later, I mean, I think the night before I left, they just relaxed the alcohol ban. And I went out, met friends in a very nice chic bar, had a Negroni and got in the car and went to Kiev the next day. And I remember thinking, you know, this is a bit, you know, this feels almost too normal. I mean, of course it wasn't. And what was also fascinating that week, it was 
just two or three days after the Russians had withdrawn from around Kiev and I went to the station that had seen such an influx coming one way that now had people going in every direction because there were people coming back and there were people still fleeing the east. So there were people trying who had come from Mariupol, there were people who'd come from Luhansk um, and were going west to safety. And then there were people coming back from Poland and coming back from the Carpathians, you know, um, and going back at that point to a very unstable, very unclear Kiev. Um, when we arrived, you know, it, it was still very battened down, very smashed up on the outskirts. There were huge checkpoints and barriers, you know, huge tank anti-tank barriers of hedgehogs and big concrete blocks and um, pillboxes and dug-in positions along, you know, the huge Soviet avenues into the, into the city. This is, to me, this is, it's not something that would get reported in the daily news, but you, you alluded to it a few minutes earlier, this extraordinary mobilization of an entire population, you know, 40 million Ukrainian citizens, including children. Had you, have you been in enough conflict zones. Have you ever seen such unity of purpose and speed of action? No, it was extraordinary. The resourcefulness, the resilience, the humor, the optimism, the collective um, effort was absolutely extraordinary. Um, and it's still going on, but it was particularly in that first month, very urgent, very concentrated, very focused. Everybody, it was all hands on deck. Everybody immediately started to contribute money to the to the army. Everybody was, um, you know, filling sandbags. What was sort of extraordinary about it was it was that it was a network and it was incredibly, it was like the internet was designed, right? The internet was designed because it's strong, a network is stronger and re more resilient than a chain or a hierarchy. Nobody had to wait for anybody to tell them how to do it. Um, and so it was very organic and incredibly strong. And so when you were trying to get, you know, humanitarian aid or food into bombarded cities or into cities that were under occupation or cut off by Russian forces and so forth. It was done in a sort of um, very word of mouth. It seemed almost very informal way, but it was done very effectively. And there were there were volunteers driving vans and boxes of, you know, baby formula and medical supplies into all sorts of, you know, scary places through, you know, in one case, um, I know where they were supplying a, a town of 20,000 people cut off by the Russians through the woods, you know, partisan fashion, driving in sacks of grain. They figured out how to, how to, how to jimmy up a, a, a grain mill, bake their own bread. The electricity ran out. They plugged it into the solar panels, you know, this sort of thing. For me, one of the things in the early days of the war, there was that uh, terrible bombing in Irpin, which is a suburb of Kiev. And... Um, that just happened to be captured on film by the New York Times Lindsay Adario, who was there. And, of course, that was when the family was killed right in front of her. And they were trying to cross a bridge over, I don't think, it, I don't think it's the Dnieper, but it's a branch of the Dnieper. And then three weeks later, you see everybody's moving back to Irpin. And this bridge has been replaced by, you know, obviously by parts that were... were chauffeured in from, say, Poland. But the speed with which transport links that have been destroyed were restored is really kind of amazing. 
It is. I mean, I remember going, we drove through Bucha about a week, maybe a little bit more, maybe eight or nine days after the Russians had withdrawn. And Erpin was really smashed up. So the damage to the um, houses in terms of artillery shells and stuff, it was absolutely just matchwood and, and really obviously, you know, smashed up and destroyed and ruined. Um, and but in Bucha, although there was there was a fair amount of damage, it was it was less wholesale, and they'd already swept the streets. There were crews reconnecting the power lines. There were crews filling in, you know, the blast craters from um, artillery shells on the tarmac with their little rolling um, machines. And it, you know, it was very peculiar to drive through this rather upscale pleasant wooded shaded suburb and you would just glance up there would be a smashed up block and there's certainly the you know there were certain um houses and blocks that had taken direct hits and were were clearly ruined but it almost looked normal it almost looked peaceful and except for when you looked up and you realized that the top floor the top floor windows were all smashed because of the way the blast waves work and so there was this sort of ring or rim of smashed windows around the town. Um, but it was extraordinary, the speed of which normal is not the word, but we drove out a week ago through the suburbs because the way we went out was the way the Russians came in, essentially. And the the bridges are blown, and so you have to go around them or up and down. Um, mostly, I think, they were often blown by the Ukrainians to stop the advance. But there are there are a lot of people on the streets. There are people waiting for buses. There are, you know, mothers pu- pushing small children in prams. Mm. Um, and people want to go home and they're going home and they're cleaning up. And even friends of mine who who had damage to their houses in the suburbs, smashed up windows or, you know, wrecked door frames and that sort of thing, um, have been able to get them fixed. I keep thinking, you know, where, there must be a shortage of glaze, you know, of, of glass or glazing or... Um, in comparison to other war zones that you've spent long periods of time in, where do, how is the destruction on a scale of 1 to 10, say, in comparison to Iraq, for example, or any other place? It's much larger war than any of us have ever seen. It's on a scale. The front is that hundreds of kilometers long. The um, the damage to infrastructure and civilian infrastructure is absolutely wholesale and extraordinary. You know, whole. We've seen the pictures of Mariupol. You've seen the pictures of Kharkiv. You know, they're just relentless. You know, this artillery so, stuff does a huge amount of damage, and yes, it's everywhere. And yes, there were a lot of Russians all around north and west of Kiev, and the damage is absolutely extensive and um, and and wholesale. So it's a much larger war. Mm-hmm. It's a much more destructive war. It's a much more um, it's it, artillery. You know, being under artillery for this number of civilians under this much artillery. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, we've seen Grozny, yes, we've seen Aleppo, but in so many places, in so in such large, dense population centres with so many civilians, it's it that seems of a different order. Did you have a jaw drop moment? Um, I think we were having dinner on the eleventh floor of the hotel, which has very glass windows. In Kiev. In Kiev, and um, the air raid siren had been on, but we hadn't noticed because you get a bit. Um, uh, ignoring these things because there's so many of them and suddenly there was a thud and something had landed and the windows thudded and you know those those impacts 
they go through the core of you. They, it's visceral rather than loud. Um, you feel them. And everybody sort of stopped, but not particularly. And we went out onto the balcony and looked up and, and you could see that there was smoke because one missile had hit, I don't know, maybe half a kilometre away, had hit something and there was smoke rising from it. And then we looked up and realised that the missile that had been arcing over where we had been having dinner had been intercepted and there was just this sort of very ethereal puff halo of smoke hanging in the air right above in the middle of a cloudless blue sky and there was nothing to do but sort of go wow and go back and have dinner it was very it was quite surreal Wendell Stevenson's longest article for the Economist's 1843 website was about what happened when Russian troops arrived at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the early days of the war the place remains a potentially deadly site full of radioactive waste I didn't go to Chernobyl, Chernobyl. I did the reporting from a town called Slavutich, which is probably 50 or 60 kilometers as the crow flies from Chernobyl, Chernobyl. Um, the Russians occupied Chernobyl power plant and the exclusion zone around that um, for 33 days. Chernobyl, it turns out, is on their way in. It was the shortest route from Belarus to Kyiv. Um, and the topography and geography of the area just makes it almost the easiest way in. So that's the way they went. So they occupied the power plant on the first day of the war and remained there until they pulled back from Kyiv 33 days later. So I wrote the story about um, the occupation of Chernobyl because the night shift who had been there, um, it's a decommissioned power plant, but obviously it, you know, uh, it blew up, Reactor 4 famously blew up in 1986, so there's still, you have to monitor that. There's, it's, it's, um, it's contained under a concrete sarcophagus and now a steel dome arch, but it's not entirely stable and you've got to pay attention to that. And there's also a lot of, you know, I think there are 20,000 you know, spent fuel rods that have to be maintained underwater and are in the process of being shifted to being held under helium. And there's also, it's also where... Uh, Ukraine processes all its nuclear waste from its four other nuclear power stations. So there's quite a lot going on and there's quite a lot of radioactive stuff there and it's a sort of strange and extraordinary, um, unique place. Um, So the night shift who were there were about 110 um, Ukrainians were stuck there under Russian occupation, couldn't get out until there was a shift change after 25 days. So it's it's the story of that, this very awkward accommodation between... How did that work? Well, very interestingly, I think the, the Ukrainians, the guy I talked to was the head of security, and he became the sort of uh, point man hinge, uh, negotiator, smoother operator between the Ukrainian staff and the Russian occupiers. Now, the Russian occupiers, the ones who were on the power plant itself, were not completely stupid. They understood where they were. Um, they looted the the sort of facilities and laboratories and and various forestry equipment and all the kind of stuff in the exclusion zone nearby. They they ran amok as they did in other places, but in the power station um, and the site of that, they were reasonably disciplined. When they first arrived, um, the head of security and the head of the shift of the plant met with the generals in charge of the Russians and. Russian um, soldiers there and pretty much convinced them that they could not 
give them access to all of the plant. They said, you can't have armed people in a nuclear power facility. This is just nuts. We will give you passes, as we all have passes, to certain parts of the plant, to the administrative building and a couple of other areas. But for operational reasons, we have to remain in operational control of this plant because it's it's not like another power plant. You can't just import your guys. It's very unique and peculiar. And this is not... And they, I, they convinced themselves, them of that. So there was this kind of unusual accommodation with the Russians, but it was, you know, not without awkwardnesses and incident. Like what? Well, the the electricity um, was cut off <laughs> at one point. <laughs> so the electricity is necessary to, to run the tanks where the fuel rods are being it's quite, wet. It's quite important, yes, because uh, radioactive stuff is very hot. And so you need electricity to um, pump water, to keep things cool, to pump ventilation systems and also to monitor. I mean, it's it's fairly key, right? It's not that you flip the switch, the power goes off and something explodes necessarily, but you're talking about hot radioactive stuff that becomes unstable, that's, you know, can can degrade, can burn through things, can boil up stuff. It, it's not crack, etc. It's not ideal. It's not good at all. The um, power went off and it wasn't clear exactly if it was sabotage, probably in the fighting, because there was quite a lot of fighting just outside the exclusion zone. They tried to, they sent Ukrainian, some Ukrainian crews to try and fix it. It was very awkward. It was probably down in more than one place. Power's out for five days, during which time, of course, because they're not completely unprepared, they have backup generators that are huge and eat diesel. So the Russians were having to essentially divert their fuel supply from the front line around Kiev in order to keep the electrical capacity of Chernobyl going, which the Ukrainians were quite well aware of. So they were like, we need a lot, we need a lot, because it's really important, it's desperate, we need more. So they sort of, I mean, they didn't, I think they egged it, they didn't invent the the, the idea that it was a problem, but they, um, um, they were definitely encouraging this um, state of affairs. But after five days, the Russians had really had enough and said, you we can't afford to divert this amount of, of, of um, diesel to Chernobyl. We're, you're going to have to plug into the Belarusian grid. So reluctantly, they didn't really have a choice. They had to do that. But it was a sort of strategic, you know, it's a sort of symbolic defeat for the, for the Ukrainians. It was awkward. They didn't like it. They did insist that the town of Slavotich, where all their families were and which had been not occupied by the Russians but cut off by the Russians had also lost power and they insisted that they they were plugged back into so they you know tried to play the best hand they could there was a story that came out of Chernobyl about Russian troops in the uh, dead zone in the forest in the red forest in the red forest being told to dig in and in so doing digging up all of this radioactivity that had settled and is still absolutely toxic. Um, is that true? It is and it isn't. So yes, they were digging trenches in the around the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and in the forest and stuff, and there's definitely evidence of that. The Red Forest itself is a very specific area because, as I understand it, which is imperfectly, and this stuff is quite complicated, but I did obviously talk to some experts and scientists who work there who know about it, 
apparently the the wind blew the fallout from the initial explosion in a certain direction and it fell in this area um, known as the Red Forest, which became particularly extremely very, very contaminated. So contaminated that they raised all the vegetation and buried it in trenches one metre under the um, forest floor and then covered them over with sort of sand and soil and replanted it. And this layer that's a metre deep remains almost the most sort of radioactive part of the entire exclusion zone. The scientists who I talked to who know Chernobyl well told me that from what they could see of the photographs the Ukrainians showed of those Russian trenches in that particular area, it looked to them like it wasn't in exactly the red, red forest, that it was in somewhere a bit near to it, still not a particularly clever place to dig into the soil, which everywhere you know is is radioactive and and toxic um, but probably not as deadly but in any case even in the red forest this idea that they would immediately get radiation sickness um, is not quite true that they would it's just, it's it's very very radioactive and very stupid to expose yourself for any length of time to that kind of level but to get acute radiation syndrome is a, is a, it's a sort of different clinical exposure I think it was particularly interesting to me as I was talking to one of the technicians who was stuck at the power plant um, in charge of monitoring. Part, part of his detail was monitoring radio ambient radiation levels. And in the first days of the war, the Russians were driving so much armour through dirt roads because it's essentially forested, um, a lot of that area, and on the Belarusian border side too, in the exclusion zone there. Um, that they were kicking up a lot of dust. And that's not what you want to do because it's radioactive. So the radi- ambient radioactivity levels were going up, not into dangerous levels, but not ideal. So I, he was explaining this to me as I, he was, I, was, I was interviewing him. And I said, so did you tell the Russians this? And he just said, no. <laughs> and, um, and we laughed. So the, I think the, the, the Ukrainians definitely... You know, played up the Russians' ignorance and fear. They didn't know, you know, it's a very particular place. So they were constantly saying, oh, you can't go into that place. It's really radioactive. We never go in there. I wouldn't sleep in there. Oh, that's, you know, they were constantly sort of um, reminding them of this threat. Um, when it, you know, but equally, uh, I think there are sort of 70 or 80,000 tourists go up to Chernobyl um, every year, usually. Mm-hmm pre-pandemic um it's not where you want to hang out for a long period of time but you know there are the ambient levels are sort of relatively safe what do you think is going to happen next now all the fighting much of the fighting now has become highly concentrated in the donbass you didn't go to the donbass but from what you were hearing in kiev up until the time you left i mean one what do you think is the strategy from the official level, but two, your own assessment, since you've got to know Ukrainian society pretty well in a short, intense period. I think it's really difficult. I mean, I think it's difficult to tell for a couple of reasons. So, so I don't, you know, the temerity of prediction for a journalist is a bit, it's not our department, as it were. 
Um, I think it's difficult to tell, firstly, because every prediction about this war has so far been false. I certainly wouldn't bet against the Ukrainians, but it's quite clear now that the concentration of the Russian forces around Severo Donetsk and on this particular um, area of the Eastern Front is quite intense. The news this week hasn't been great, but they, they pulled back from Kharkiv. That's kind of good, but now we're seeing this very intense um, um, offensive um, in Donetsk. So this was expected, but it's the news this week is tough. I think that a lot of all the way along, you know, there, there's been a certain drumbeat of punditry that's been naysaying that has assumed that the Russians are somehow just big and Russian and smash smash their way through and will prevail at some point. And I think we've seen that narrative be, be diluted by um, Ukrainian resistance, um, by their flexibility, by their uh, doggedness, determination. Um, there's no doubt that there's nothing more unifying than the Russian invasion. You know, every Ukrainian you talk to is very of one mind. It's very clear um, it's an entirely unified, mobilized effort. And you kind of have to think that the longer they can hold out, the longer that they can resist, the longer that they can uh, continue to fight the Russians to a standstill, give them bloody noses, threaten them with counter attacks rather than counter offensives or whatever they can do, destroy their materiel, you know, kill their soldiers the longer it becomes harder for Russia to sustain an attack. It seems to me that I remember thinking right at the beginning, you know, when it seemed as if Kiev would fall very quickly and that would be an obvious thing. And I just, you know, in those very early war days when it didn't, and I just remember thinking every hour that Kiev stands, every day that they stand, that's a victory. That's a sort of bloody nose. That's a you just can't have it all your own way. You can't assume, you can't just knock over another domino with the back of your hand. And I think that's important. The resistance, the effort of that is important. The other thing that's also very interesting is that, you know, you hear again the sort of slightly naysaying, you know, well, it's attritional, well, it's, you know, getting bogged down, well, it's a, you hear words like stalemate or stalled or something. But actually, it's a very dynamic war. You know, it's moving all the time. And we've seen, you know, sudden reversals and changes, you know, in quite a short period of time. So I think it's way too early to talk about fixed positions and stalemates and, you know, this kind of thing. And you just, you know, the other thing that is is the unknowable quantifying is what the hell is going on in the Kremlin. So it feels there's just something about the Russian effort that feels so hollow and rotten and corrupted from inside that you just feel that it... It could collapse, it oddly could just go very quickly and mm -hmm. collapse overnight and that you could just poof and something else would happen. That, that, that's been my thought throughout. And, you know, and people talk, oh, well, Putin is ill. He certainly doesn't look well. The half-acidness of this is really quite shocking in some ways. Although, I mean, if you grow fat on beating up on... Grozny and Aleppo, which is quite a different proposition than 40 million united people of a different nation with weapons and a, and a, a steady supply, resupply of weapons. It's quite a different proposition. You underestimate everything. I mean, if you 
get high on your own supply, as it were. Well, we'll just do to them what we did in Aleppo. And they'll... But, you know, the thing is that Syria is still riven. I mean, there's no end in that war. And... The Russians can't take Ukraine. The it, third, you know, Hitler couldn't take... Hitler couldn't take Russia because you have to get through Ukraine to get to, <laughs> to get to Russia, you know. Napoleon, Hitler have the same problem. It's just enormous. And it's extraordinary to me. And now I think I haven't exactly looked at the numbers and you know, these things are operational. And so you don't really ever know exactly. But it seems that the Ukrainians are fielding, you know, more people in the field than the Russians are and uh, and are being resupplied. And, you know, the, the, the Ukrainian casualties, you know, we don't know for very good reasons. Um, and they're not small. But the Russian casualties are higher. Um, it seems, and the you know the constant degrada degradation of their ability to fight. I mean, you, I remember my dad. We're sitting in my dad's library, which is full of military history books, and and we used to talk about this kind of thing all the time. And how do you win a war? Right? It's not really about taking the. You win a war by destroying the other guy's army. Right? That's one of the things you have to do to stop them being able to fight. It's not about this battle or this town or taking this bit of territory. And, you know, it, they're doing that quite effectively. To sit in, in this lovely library after two and a half months, you know, in, you, you said earlier that this is the biggest war you've ever seen. You know, and you were in Iraq, you were in Afghanistan, and... It wasn't a war, but you were. You spent a year overlooking Tahrir Square, which was a profound movement to overthrow an entrenched government. No, this is this is and, Ukraine is of a different scale. It's not only a different scale in, in in terms of you know Russia v Ukraine, two very large, very well equipped you know uh, modern industrial nations, but it's a, but it's also of a different geopolitical scale. You know, we're seeing the knock on effect and the tectonic shifts in that in all sorts of extraordinary different ways. Yeah. But what, what the question I want to ask is, what is it like to come back from a war of this scale and step back into a London? that is slowly coming back to normal after two and a half years of COVID. Well, it's always a bit, re-entry is always a bit surreal. It's always a bit difficult. It's always sort of somewhere between jet lag and culture shock. And um, it always, um, I mean, it always amazes me that you can get on a plane and be somewhere else as quickly as you can. It, it's, it's sort of a magic trick of the 20th century. It doesn't, it's sort of crazy. I don't think any of us, normal human beings ever really get used to that jarring thing but it's also interesting that you know when you would come out of Iraq and Lebanon and the Middle East you know it was there was something about it that felt like it was far away that it was somebody else's war people were you know not uninterested um, but not talking about it Ukraine is absolutely front and center and and of um, direct and immediate urgent interest, it seems to me, to the, the rest of Western Europe. So it feels connected in a way that coming back from the Middle East felt disconnected. Will you be going back anytime soon? I think I'm going to go back in early July. I think there's, you know, the, for a, for a writer, for a reporter, there are, it's just an extraordinary story. There are many stories. Everybody is a story. Every single person you meet has a tale to tell. And it's, 
it's big, it's important. And it's also, you know, it happens, it happens every time. It happens every time, but it often happens, you know, when you are, when you spend time in a place, when you talk to people, when you, it's very intense, this stuff. And so you, you care and you make friends and you, it becomes sort of part of you. And, and that it's a great privilege. It's a great privilege to, to witness it. It's a great privilege to be there. Um, and yes, of course, I want to go back. Wendell Stevenson, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this FRTH podcast. My thanks again to Wendell Stevenson for taking time to talk to me and making me a nice cup of tea, Ukrainian style, black with lemon and sugar. Please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. <laughs>